Warning, this episode may contain graphic material and is meant for only adult audiences. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Shooting the Breeze. I'm Cody. And I'm Sawyer. And today we have a special guest, Kale Archer, with us. What's up, guys? What's going on, Kale? <laughs> My Kale Archer. So I got to talking to Kale the other day, and we were like kind of brainstorming some ideas and everything. Kale was like, dude, we need to do like a true crime episode. And I mean, I've never like not I know, expected. <laughs> I like true crime. I know you. Sorry, you don't really. Yeah, this is out of my wheelhouse. Yeah, disclaimer, clear. guys. This is planned, and like, we are not professionals at this in any any sort of the way. <laughs> no, no, we're not. But Kale here is the professional here today because he is a. <laughs> <laughs> He is, yeah, that's crazy. He, no, but you do like true crime and stuff like that, you know. Yeah, you're I, big, I indulge. I indulge. You're a big fan. Listen to podcasts, watch the documentaries, do research, and everything like that. So, we both are all three of us today have brought in a true crime story. Yep. To tell to tell one another, and I haven't heard y'all's two stories. I know y'all haven't heard my story. Nope. I don't think any of us have heard each other's stories here today. No. So we're gonna bust these things wide open, and just see where it goes. Let's go. You ready? Oh, yeah, I'm ready. You ready? Yeah. All right. Well, let's dive on in. All right. So we each have our own true crime story that we brought with us today. And I guess, sorry, you want to start us off? Yeah, I started off. Like I said, I'm kind of new to this. this. isn't necessarily my wheelhouse, but um, I've got the chilling story of Stephen McDaniel, the murderer who gave himself away during an interview on live television. What an idiot! David, he, like, <laughs> hey, he got caught because he said it on television. You, well, not necessarily. So you got to see the interview, which I, I, you know, I encourage anybody if you want to look into this to go. You can find all sorts of stuff about it. Um, Stephen McDaniel. Um, and there's an interview of him where they're talking to him after the murder and everything had happened. You, you just got to go see This is it. actually I, like a pretty viral clip. Yeah, like, it's, it's pretty viral. Say, it went around Facebook for a minute. A lot of people have seen the interview and don't even know that this is what it, that this is what it was. Really? Yeah. So, okay. So it's kind of cool. Um, I, as far as the chronological order and everything, you'll just have to bear with me and we'll talk it over. Okay. But I, I'm just going to get into what it says. All right. A few days after murdering Lauren Giddings, Stephen McDaniel posed as a concerned neighbor on local news, but his charade crumbled when he learned from the reporter that her body had just been found. Okay, so, so we already know he did it. Yeah, we already know he did it at the top, uh, top of here, right? No, okay. no mystery necessarily here, but how it leads up to it is kind of what the cool part is. And like I said, the interview is kind of iconic. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's, that's one of the main things. So yeah, let's jump right in here, okay? So in the early hours... Of June 26, 2011, Stephen McDaniel broke into the apartment of his neighbor and fellow Mercer University Law School school graduate, Lauren Giddings, then murdered her and dismembered her body. Oh, uh, yeah. That's a little bit I, I know we gave a you know. Yeah, we gave a little a disclaimer. disclaimer at the beginning of this episode. If you don't like anything graphic or violent, and I'm not saying these are graphic or violent, but there is going to be. We're not going to be like going in the nitty gritty of how everything happened. Yeah, but the we, details. But we are going to hit the facts on the on the. Yeah, cases. we would hate to like. We're not going to try to downplay it either. Yeah, we're going to say the truth and everything that's in it. Yeah, totally. All right, sorry, go ahead. All right, so on June 29th, Giddings' family and friends reported her missing when local news media in Macon, Georgia, heard about her disappearance. They sent a camera crew to her apartment complex. There, on June 30th, reporters from the television station WGXA conducted an interview with McDaniel. During the interview, McDaniel posed as a concerned neighbor. He described Giddings as nice as can be, 
and very personable. But shortly into the interview, McDaniel's behavior took a dramatic turn after he learned from the reporter that a body had been found. Okay, wait, wait, wait. So, so, because I'm trying to develop a time frame in my mind. Yeah. So, he killed this girl. What's her name? Yeah, it's Lauren Giddings. Okay, so Lauren Giddings Mm -hmm. was killed by this man. Yes, on June 26th. And he's already getting interviewed about it? So, um, June 26th is when it happened that he killed her. Okay. Okay. All right, and then on June 29th, the Giddings family reported that she was missing. Okay. That's three days. That's a long time. Yeah, three days that she'd been missing, okay? And then on June 30th is when they interviewed him, okay? And he was posing as like a concerned, you know, bystander. Okay, so four days later, he already did it. Yes. Now he's getting interviewed. And you said that they just revealed that they found a body, the news outlet is? They they were asking him questions. Like I said, you'll have to watch the interview. They were asking him questions, and then they're like, uh, somewhere in the video, they're like, so what do you think about the recent development of them finding a body? And then... And he was like, they found a body? Yeah. So I'll get get into that. Okay. So during the interview, McDaniel posed as a concerned neighbor. We've been over that. Um, Described her as nice as can be, very personable. But shortly into the interview, McDaniel's behavior took a dramatic turn after he learned from the reporter that a body had been found. His worry turned to utter panic. Body, he said, visibly anxious. I think I need to sit down. Like Ooh. I said, watch the interview. Like, it's like... Suspicious. Yeah, the interview's, the interview's crazy because like, like, he just changes. You just see him go pale in the face? Yeah, just like... And it's, it's pretty... Like, dang. All right. Though some may have initially thought that McDaniel's reaction was merely the shock of losing a friend, police named him as a person of interest in the investigation just one day later. Off of that? Just off of that uh, interview? Just off of that. Just Whoa. off of that. Like, oh, there wasn't any like fingerprints there wasn't any other evidence yes yeah, so we'll we will get into they named it as a person of interest okay so and then yeah we're gonna I, I do think it's notable to like most like killers they take one or two sides in a murder they're either like really really involved or they'll step away mm-hmm. and cops will look at that and they'll say okay if you're way too overly oh she was so nice she's such a good person i'm gonna be here i'm gonna help you in every way they look at that and they'll see okay this is what we're looking, we're looking for this yeah they're, Police are smart. I mean, they're going to figure that stuff out pretty quickly. Right. Okay. That makes sense. All right. So, yeah, uh, as a person of interest and the investigation just one day later, and it was later revealed that McDaniel was indeed the one who had killed Giddings and butchered her body. Given the nature of the crime, the brutality of it, and how little contact McDaniel had with Giddings prior to the murder, many believe that he had not been caught. He would have gone on to kill even more women. Okay. So... Dang, so I wonder if there's a backstory to this, like how they even got together, if he was like just there a creep. Is. Oh, there, oh, there is. is. So there, yes. is a, there is a motive we're going to find out. Yeah, so okay. yeah, it, this is where it takes kind of the, a darker turn when you start learning more about him. And he butchered her body? Yes, it's all about to make sense. Was okay. that like for his personal pleasure or was that to hide the body? Oh, yeah. Okay, all, <laughs> all right. right, so c- c- continue. All right, so this, this kind of section of the story is called Inside the Twisted Mind of Stephen McDaniel. Stephen McDaniel was born on September 9th, 1985, and grew up near Atlanta, Georgia. His early life was unremarkable, but as a young man, he was academically inclined enough to graduate from Mercer University's law school. His future victim, Lauren Giddings, was another graduate, as we've talked about before. By 2011, both 24-year-old McDaniel and 27-year-old Giddings lived in the same apartment complex a short distance from the school's campus at the time. Giddings was preparing to take the bar exam and then start a promising career as a defense attorney. But tragically, while Giddings had been preparing for the bar, McDaniel had been preparing for her murder. 
Oh, what yeah. a line! And it, also, <laughs> and it also sucks because like you, you see like two six like decently successful people. Yeah, it's like it's yeah, not it's like, like she 20, had her whole life ahead of her, and she like had so much potential, like going to Mercer, graduating with right. a law degree, and like going about to on. take the bar. I mean, yeah, well, same like, for him. I, well, so I, don't, he, I mean, I don't graduated mean, too, I don't so. mean to shed like light on him, but like same for him. It's not like his life was bad. No, you know what I mean. Like he was, he was about to take the bar and graduate law school and make a ton of money. Yeah, and he ruined his life by making this mistake. And it really shows you, like a lot of people think, like, oh, they committed this crime. Like, because when you hear about crimes, like especially true crime, it's like a crime happened, they got caught, and you're like, oh, that person's so dumb, they got they committed a crime. Mm -hmm. The people that commit crimes are very smart. Like, yes, very. They're very in, like intelligent mm -hmm. individuals because like they they get away with it for quite some time. It's not like they get caught just right then and there, like in the act. Yeah, um, and it's not always like people with bad lives who are doing the killing, which makes it like makes mm -hmm. me a little bit more unsettling because like this is a good well, you have a hard time even, for you him. have a hard time even like having any sympathy for them, right? It's not like oh, it makes sense. It's, yeah, like I see what you're saying. It's unnerving because it could be anybody, right? It's you don't have to be from back background. You yeah. know what I'm saying? All right. So at first glance, McDaniel didn't seem like he had it in him to commit such a heinous crime. As the Macon Telegraph reported it, it didn't seem like he was staying in town for much longer. The lease on his apartment was up in two weeks, and he had reportedly planned on moving back in with his parents. But as police would later discover, McDaniel had been posting on the internet about his hatred of women and his desire to torture them. Okay. Yeah. Oddly enough, he was also something of a survivalist, stockpiling food and energy drinks in his apartment. And as he told police during an interrogation, he often wore the same pair of underwear for more than one day at a time. So there's like a few like starting red flags on there. <laughs> yeah, hatred starting, hatred of women. And then he's like, okay, this man kind of dirty. So my thing, he said he started stockpiling energy drinks. What's this man get a little <laughs> What's he preparing bang? for? Celsius. Yeah, yeah. He's preparing to play Call of Duty for the rest of his my life. My man's going to go like. stupid with the Celsius. Okay, and he would wear underwear multiple days at a time? Yeah, the red flag. That's nasty. In any person, That's really. nasty. Yeah. Yeah, so first red flag kind of out of the way. All right, McDaniel didn't have much luck when it came to women. He was on eHarmony, but he didn't land many dates. He was also a self-professed virgin, claiming that he was saving himself for marriage. Cute. <laughs> Cute. And yet, he had condoms in his apartment. And I know that seems like, what does that mean, right? So he was ready for oh, yeah, anything was, to happen. Yeah, he was ready he was, for it. So, okay, self-proclaimed virgin with condoms in his apartment. Yes, right. Got it. Which seems like nothing at the start. Like it's like, all right, he was just lying. But all right, a fact that would later prove to be a very important or to be very important in the investigation of Lauren Giddings' murder. That said, McDaniel caught the attention of the authorities shortly after the investigation began. Shortly after Giddings' dismembered torso was found in a trash can near her apartment complex mm. on the morning of June thirtieth, so when he was interviewed, right? Oh, just throw back that. Yes. So, so she was in a trash can. Yes. So oh the fact gosh. that it was near her apartment complex, kind of like he, he wasn't as smart with how I thought he was going to be with it, honestly. Right. After I heard dismembered, he's going to hide the stuff. He didn't. Well, you definitely think, man, this is so, like, so you would definitely think somebody who studied law would kind of like know how to get away. Have you ever seen the Netflix show, How to Get Away with Murder? Yes. Okay. So that, good. Th that was, yeah, it, it actually is good. So like, good. The first season's really good. Um, but you would think like knowing all the ins and outs of law and like crime and everything like that, you would think you'd know how to get away with it better. Mm -hmm. And I'm not like, you know, rooting this guy on, like, oh, man, I hope he gets away with it. But, like, still, like, it didn't really put up a fight. Like, it was kind of, yeah. anyways. So, yeah, on the same day that they interviewed him, right, if we're throwing it back to um, what I said earlier, McDaniel and Giddings, other neighbors, had been taken to the police station to give statements about the young woman's disappearance. At the time, none of them knew that her remains had been found. 
Each neighbor agreed to have their apartment searched, except McDaniel. Hmm. Sus. Claiming it's the lawyer in me. I'm just always protective of my space. He eventually allowed one detective to walk through his unit, but only if McDaniel was there at the same time. Given the uh, damning evidence that police would later find in his apartment, it's not surprising that he would want to keep them out. After all, he had Giddings' underwear in there and a stolen master key that he had used to break into her apartment. Okay. He, he really, I mean, as yeah. much as this is like, okay, he had planned this out before, he, he did not do a very good job. So, so the detective saw this stuff? Yes. The, so he saw her underwear and he saw a, a master key. Mm-hmm. I wonder how he got the master key. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess he could have just went to, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, he had to be at least a little bit like, like probably per- persuasive. If he's going to be a lawyer, he could probably talk his way into a good bit of stuff. Mm-hmm. That's probably fair. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. All right. So because of McDaniel's secretive behavior, police kept an eye on him, but he wasn't going anywhere. Throughout the day, he hung around the apartment complex as authorities searched through the other units. It was around this time that he gave his infamous interview with the local news station. So this is when he got pale in the face. This yes. is about to Okay, so yes. we backtracked and talked through it. Yes. He doesn't know. So they've already started searching people's apartments, but he, he doesn't know that they found a body yet. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. So right. this is, right now it's a disappearance, not a murder. At, at least all the neighbors think you said. Like, yeah, so the police oh, know yeah. it's a murder. Everybody else thinks it's a disappearance. Yes. yes. Which is a common thing police do. They'll keep all the evidence mm-hmm. they have so far just in case somebody yeah, comes up, up and slips up. Yeah, up until this point is when yeah. it got real. Okay. All right, so um, as Stephen McDaniel stood by while police searched the apartment complex for clues, a local television news station called WGXA sent a crew to the building to report on the story. When they spotted McDaniel standing around, they asked if he would give an interview, and he agreed. At first, McDaniel seemed like any other concerned local who was worried about his missing neighbor. We don't know where she is, he told the reporter behind the camera. The only thing we can think of is maybe that she went out running and someone snatched her. One of her friends had a key. We went inside and tried to see anything that was amiss. So he's already admitted to going into her apartment, which... Now the detective has already found a key, I'm guessing, with the timeline. Yeah, yeah. Okay. which is smart on his behalf. Yeah, this, now it does, it does take away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now yeah. he can justify why he has that key. Why he has a master key. Okay, to check on her for her well. He basically did a wellness check. Yes, basically. So he, he's, he's basically doing a little bit of damage control right now. And I'm he guessing. did this with one of her friends? Is that what it said? Yeah, it said one yes. of her friends had a key. One of her friends had a key. We went inside and tried to see anything that was amiss. She had a door jam that was sitting right by it, so there was no sign that anyone broke in. Okay. Okay. All right. But by the time McDaniel learned from the reporter that a body had been discovered in a nearby trash can, his demeanor completely changed. Visibly panicked, he was silent for a moment before telling the reporter that he needed to sit down. It was later revealed that only Giddings' torso had been found, and the other parts of her body had been discarded elsewhere. Hmm. Yep. Okay. So, okay. So he. He didn't dump all of the body in one place, which yeah. is kind of odd because yeah. like you're basically, you're basically putting evidence in more places that can be checked instead of just putting it in one place. If the evidence is going to be found, it's going to be found. You're making more trails to you. You know right? what I'm saying? Instead yeah. of just one trail. If evidence is going to be found, you might as well just put it all in one place See, instead yeah. of spreading it out. I think, I think it's smarter for him to like put it in different places because. Why? How? Because, I mean, it gives you less like a torso is a lot smaller than actual body. And I mean, I don't know why he oh, put it in the trash can. Oh, as far as getting rid of it. But yeah. But I guess my thing is like, okay, if you put some of it in a trash can and then he went out into the middle of a field and dug a hole and put the rest there, why yeah. not just put the torso with that? 
Because so, it's harder harder to carry, though. I mean, you got to think he's got to take it out of that apartment complex where everybody knows she's missing. So oh. he's like, I'm, I, they probably have cameras. It's 2016. I mean, they probably still have cameras all around the apartment. The neighbors are probably there. So. Yeah. Dang. Okay. I didn't think about that. All right. So they found the rest of the body. They found it in the trash can. They found the rest of the body somewhere else. Mm-hmm. All right, so as McDaniel failed to maintain his composure, police learned more about their person of interest and the disturbing details of his personal life. So if you thought it was bad already, like about him, it's about to get worse. Okay, hold on. All right, I'm ready. All right, so authorities would eventually uncover evidence from McDaniel's laptop that showed he'd been gathering information on Giddings and her whereabouts leading up to her death. There was also a series of videos that indicated he'd been stalking Giddings, looking into her apartment unit through a window. Okay, so that shows oh. there was cameras at the apartment. Mm-hmm. Or at least something to get video of him looking into her apartment. Okay, so they did have camera footage of him watching in her apartment. Mm-hmm. That, that would make a little bit more sense on why, they dismem- why, he, why she was dismembered then, in my opinion. Why? Just because he had to be a little bit more sneaky getting her out. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. That does sound smart. Okay. The case took a turn for the worse for McDaniel when the computer evidence started coming out and it just kept coming. McDaniel's attorney, Frank Hugo, or Hogu? Hogu? Hogue? Hogue? I think it's Hogue. Frank it's, Hogue. It's a weird yeah. name. Frank Hogue later explained to CBS News they were continuing to find more and more evidence related to his computer and camera. Oof. The fact that McDaniel had posted on a number of internet blogs and forums about his general hatred of women and his desire to hurt them only strengthened the case for his involvement in the horrific murder. So this was McDaniel's attorney who said this. That's really not good. Yeah, this is like... Dang, his, his own attorney done turned yeah, on Yeah, that's him. like, okay, I'm trying to defend you, but you're not, you're not giving me a <laughs> you're, chance. I don't know how <laughs> you're much not I helping you, me but... whatsoever. Help me help you. Yeah. All right, but even before police had collected this information, they felt certain they'd found the man based on their initial conversations with him. So on, the same day they discovered Giddings' body, they brought McDaniel into the police station for another round of questioning less than 12 hours later. Mm-hmm. So he, yeah, he's caught. They got him. They got to have yep. got him. Well, I think he's going to do pretty good in questioning, knowing he has all his... I feel like he put up a good fight in court, mm-hmm. for sure. Well, questioning, that means they really don't have him yet, and they're going to try and get stuff out of him, but if, he, if he's like been through law... He's going to be pretty, like, They've got a good he's going to be kind of shut with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If he's trying to be a defense attorney, he's got to yeah. have some kind of knowledge about that. All right. So when Stephen McDaniel was brought into the police station again on the night of June 30th, 2011, his demeanor was eerily still. He was also tight-lipped, only answering a few questions, most often responding, I don't know. Even when detectives were out of the room, McDaniel sat perfectly still. The interview stretched on into the early hours of July 1st, and McDaniel still had nothing to say. Detective David Patterson grilled McDaniel for hours, asking about Lauren Giddings' location, asserting that he knew McDaniel knew what had happened. He also acknowledged McDaniel's shift in demeanor from how willing he'd been to talk earlier in that day on June 30th. Okay. Which so he started to break a little fair bit? Fair enough. Well, the, what they were saying is like, you were real, you were, you know, spouting off all this stuff about her um, until we said something about a body. Yeah, this and now you're kinda, all like now you're real tight lipped, you know. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. But him being tight lipped, just coming from law, that is yeah, even even just, if he didn't do it, he would still be tight lipped. I mean, that, that's you how see, you're gonna be when you see all the episode, like the shows of like cops and like lawyers mm-hmm. and everything. 
they, they say like the first thing the lawyers tell their, their you know their um, don't say nothing don't say yeah, anything yeah, yeah. don't say I, I let me do the talk you. yeah yeah <laughs> don't don't tell him anything so I mean he's doing it the right way you know like not giving him anything yep. but he's also by doing that he's also kind of giving away something by mm-hmm. not doing anything at all you're still saying something I right? don't think so because it talks about how he's like his demeanor so still and he seems like but they were saying calm. versus when they first interviewed him and he was like yeah I love she was such a great person and now he's like so still like but I'm it like, is a totally I'm, different environment like, that was an interview with the news this is with that's the, true that was like an police. interview just to get information now this is an interview this, like, was, this was missing they, versus they, they, murder like, so yeah like yeah. you're a suspect now so it's like okay I get yeah that. so why are you shutting down patterson asked i don't know mcdaniel replied eventually detective david patterson left the interrogation room and detective scott chapman entered after another series of questions and no real answers chapman attempted to appeal to mcdaniel's humanity yeah humanity we want to give you the opportunity to tell it, he said, so you don't look like a monster at the end. I know you feel bad about it. Though the gravity of the situation was clearly weighing on McDaniel, he still refused to share any meaningful information with Chapman. It was only when Detective Carl Fletcher entered the room that McDaniel slipped up. So they're saying they already have him, so you don't look like a monster at the end. I know you feel bad about it. So they're saying we already know you Like, we it. got you. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're caught already. So this is the third detective about to come in the room, Carl third Fletcher? Detective, yes. Okay, and he said he slipped up? Yes. Okay. McDaniel didn't admit to murdering Giddings that night, but he did admit to an unrelated crime. At one point during the interrogation, Fletcher mentioned condoms that he had found in McDaniel's apartment. Since McDaniel was supposedly a virgin who was saving himself for marriage, why did he have condoms and where did he get them from? Okay. Odd. Yeah. odd, odd uh, right. It's like you didn't think that had anything yeah, to do with the story. Yeah, odd really. like, you know... Yes, yeah, like that's like down, that's like but, personal life. It's like okay, yeah, they're good. They're, they're good. They, they, yeah, they're smart. They're they're gonna figure stuff out pretty quickly. Yeah, as McDaniel put it, he had previously entered a few of his classmates' apartments while they were out and taking condoms from them. In other words, he confessed to burglarizing his classmates' residences. Because of this, he was arrested on burglary charges. As police gathered all the evidence they needed to prove his involvement in Lauren Giddings' oh, murder, and, he is so dumb. And he had already admitted to being in Lauren Giddings' apartment, apartment as well. So it's like this just isn't looking good for him. No, so that's just not good. That shows he doesn't at least know how to get the keys. So, so that confuses me. It's like, why did you say that you took him from other people's apartment when they weren't home? Why didn't you just say, oh, I went, oh, I went to and Walgreens? Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. I went to Walgreens. I went to Walmart and I got some yeah, condoms. It's like what? Like, why, why are you, you making that's, this that's weird? That's not any, there's nothing wrong with that. I would that call was that like a the slip most up. sketchy way to get condoms in right. the world. Like, <laughs> I would definitely call that a slip up. Yeah. As they okay. Put it. All right. So, all right. In 2014, now mind you, all of these other dates have been what? 2011. Oh, 11. 11. Yeah. 11? 2011 yeah. was when all this happened. Dang. Okay. I had the right time frame, just the wrong year. Got it. <laughs> yeah, okay. It's all right. All right. 2011. All right. In 2014, this is, this is, uh, that, uh, 2011 is when all the murder happened, right? Okay. In 2014, McDaniel pleaded guilty to murdering Giddings. He attempted to breaking into her apartment using a stolen master key, strangling her to death, and dismember, uh, dismembering her body with a hacksaw in the bathtub. After his guilty plea, he was sentenced to life in prison for the, uh, life in prison for the grisly crime. Oh my gosh. Well, so three Dude. years. It took three years. And so that's, he, that's a lot of detail he put in that, because I mean... I, I, don't, I don't know why he went into that much detail about it. He could have just said, yeah, I did it. Mm-hmm. I think he's kind of like, it might be remorse. I don't know. I don't, it might I be a, know. more of a. Dang. So that man held it together pride. for three years and then finally just was, I guess he was probably done getting drilled. He was ready to just like give in. Dang, dude. Okay. So that was the story of Stephen McDaniel. Yep. 
And uh, just the last little bit, it says, Since then, Stephen McDaniel has attempted to appeal his conviction on numerous occasions, making allegations about ineffective counsel on the theft of defense trial uh, preparations by the state. So far, he has failed at all his appeals, and though he will be eligible for parole in 2041, legal experts strongly believe that he will spend the rest of his life behind bars. I mean, that's good. Well, a a lot of times, like with stuff like that, when you're going for parole, they will look in, and if you're... They say extreme danger mm-hmm. to like society. They will. They will most likely not let you have parole. They'll keep you forever. And yeah. if he, if he like, he hates women. If he hates women. He just. I did, enjoys, I never saw a true motive yeah, in that. So it's like torturing them. There was no yeah, reason keep, to keep kill him, her. Yeah, keep him locked up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like okay, you're gonna burglarize, and then you don't have a true motive. You're gonna do it again. Yeah, that's fair. All right, I think that's a perfect transition to my case because mine also involves law in a way. Okay. Mine is the case of Edwin Laura, 34 years old, and it's called Urge to Kill. Urge to Kill. So it starts out with Kaylee Sawyer. She's 23 years old. This Sawyer? Is in, this is in July of 2016. <laughs> Sawyer. Is that you? No, I'm just kidding. So she's out with her friends at a bar for a bachelorette trip, and they're probably getting a little bit wild. Okay. I mean, it doesn't, I don't, I don't really have any much detail on what happened. Wasted. Yeah, probably. White girl wasted, is that what he said? <laughs> yeah. yeah, she's probably, they're probably, you know, they're, go, they're going out, they're having some fun. There's probably some guys they met. So, okay. Her boyfriend comes and picks her up, and they get in a fight on the way home. So as they're getting in a fight, it, he said that it was pretty normal if they got in a fight that was pretty bad, that one of them would just walk it off. So she says, all right, I'm going to go walk it off to cool off. And mind you, this is at night. They just got back from a bar, so it's probably brilliant. Probably really late at night, but they live right beside a college. So it's like, okay, it's like a decent little area. They have security there. So... Edwin Laura, he was a part-time security guard at Central Oregon Community College, which is where this takes place. And he has a patrol car, which looks just like a cop car. So he pulls up, and he's just checking on it. He's like, hey, are you okay? I see you walking by yourself. It's like, it's really late at night. He says, I can take you home. So he, got, he says he's going to take her home. And this is where it starts to happen. She gets in the back of the car, and in, in the patrol cars, they lock from the back. Mm-hmm. Oh, so now she's stuck in there. Dang, that's a scary feeling. Getting in there and you can't get out. Like it's like child lock, kind of. Well, it's it's like actual cop car. Yeah. So it's like oh, so there's like there, no there's handle. there's bars oh and it's like gosh. you you can only let them out from the outside. Okay. So she's she's trapped in the back of the car, and this is where Edwin Laura ends up hitting her with a rock that does not kill her. They said the rock was about the size of a football. So and he did this in the back seat to her. Yes. So so she was locked in the back seat. He got in the back seat with her and like just hit her with a rock. I think that so there, it's called Lot B12 at this college. It's very secluded off like right in the woods. So it's like a perfect spot. Okay. Which is kind of sad to say. Okay. So he gets her out there and he hits her with a rock that's about the size of a football, but it did not kill her. So he takes a rock that, he, that they said is two times the size and he struggled to pick up and hit her across the head and that ended up killing her. And it is notable to say that he, he did rape her body. And that's when he put her body in the back of the car. He put her head in a plastic bag because there was so much blood. He so, put her head in a plastic bag? Yes. Oh, because he hit her. Yeah, he hit her in the head with a rock, so okay. it was so much blood. I mean, he, he, was a, like, he has his law. He's, he's going to figure out how to, a way to... So in the car. He did this while she like, in the car. In the back of the car. No, no, no. It's, like, it's on the lot. So it's like, she could have been out the car when he hit her with a rock. Okay, I was about to say, because I was like, how's he going to get rid so I wonder of all what the... the... Yeah, I wonder what the storyline behind that is. Is like, how did he get her outside of the car? And then, you know, mm-hmm. just, I don't know. There's a lot of questions. Is there a motive to this at the end? No. Kinda, no? No. Is this That's why it's called Urge to Kill. We'll get into that in a second. Okay, okay, continue okay. on. So his wife, when he got home, she was, she's a cop. So she, she has prior knowledge to all this. 
Like she, she was smart with that stuff. His wife said when she got home that she could tell something was off and he was quieter than normal. And that's where it ends for that night. So okay. the next morning. But he was married. We didn't even know that. Yes. Yes. He's married. Edwin is married. Yes. Dang, Which, this, this is pretty notable. He is married. I bet you the boyfriend feels terrible. Yes. Because they, they left on a fight and she went to go walk it off and got mm-hmm. killed. Yeah. If, if, there's, there's podcasts and you can, like, they interview the boyfriend, they interview the families, interview the wife. I mean, this, if, okay. this is a case to do your actual like, research on the backside of it. Okay. So Edwin confessed to his wife the next morning, but he made up a story about how he killed a woman unintentionally after running her over with a patrol vehicle. And then he said he hid the body. And his wife is a cop. So she's going to go to the cops about this. Like, right. that's, that's her job. Yeah. They take an oath that they have to do that. Okay. So as, he's, as she's going to the... She leaves, like, not long after. He took his wife's, like, service pistol, 9 millimeter pistol, left the house, and was on the run. Okay, so he just left on the run. He's, he's, like, he's on the run now. I'm just going to go for it. Okay. Which... Dang. Okay. The wife did the right thing mm-hmm. in that sense, but the, people also have conspiracies that because she kept out minor details about his mother living in the same town, he went and got her car, and they didn't know that. So that's why he had so much time to get on the run. He switched cars, and this is where he meets his next victim. This is Andrea Mace. She's 19 years old. She's getting off work at Marshall's. Mm. She gets off work. She just worked like an eight-hour shift. Marshall's? She's on her phone. Yeah, she works at Marshall's. This is where? This is Oregon. Oregon, okay. okay. Yeah. The St. Griffin? Georgia? No, it's not <laughs> Christian Georgia. <laughs> Marshalls? All right, continue. All right, so she gets off work, and she's just on her phone after work, mm-hmm. and he comes up and puts a gun to her head, and he says, you're going to drive me. In her car. In her car. This guy is whack. He's, yeah, he's switching cars now. He gets in her car and points a pistol at her and says, tell her to drive. So he wants to go from Oregon to Northern California. Good God. Which I don't really know that's why. Not, it's not. Oh, I thought you were about to say you don't know how far that is. I was going to say, that's not that far, but. Like, so, it's still a drive, anyways. And it's notable to say that Edwin did not want to kill Andrea because he sees her as, like, a body bag for the cops because he has, like, a hostage now, kind mm-hmm. of. So, as they're driving, they had to stop. First off, to get some sleep, but also her car's leaking oil. So now they have to find a new car. Dang. And like I said, she's, she's not, he's not looking at her as a prospect to kill. So he's, like, genuinely treating her good. At one point, she had to go to the bathroom. And he just stops at a gas station. She goes to the bathroom and comes back and drives a car. I guess that's a pretty, like, to be a hostage, that's Yeah, I mean, it's like, terrible. it's really, a, it's a, a good situation for her. That and she didn't, not, like, like, tip off the people in the gas station or anything. She says in, in a later interview mm-hmm. that these situations, you think, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wreck the car. And I'm going to run out. But she says, when you get in that situation, your whole motive is to live. Yeah, you're so gonna, you're gonna do whatever you can to stay alive. Right? Yeah, you're not so gonna she's, endanger she's, yourself. She's playing the part. Yeah, she's pleasing his demands of okay, I'm driving you. This is what we're gonna do. So they stop and they get a hotel, and this is where things t- t- take a little bit of a turn. And they're sleeping together, and in the same bed they're sleeping. And he like starts to like get a little bit touchy with her, and she says, "I don't want to do that." Mm-hmm. And he's like, he kind of backs off for a second. He's like, "Okay, that's fine." Which this is where it gets weird because he kind of he does have like a remorse in a way of like okay I'm gonna like respect her boundaries yeah but then he kind of like backs off on it he's like kind of like getting close to her again and an alarm goes off on her phone and she being quick witted she really this is this is very smart from her 
when he like he freaks out, like, oh, what's that alarm for? Like he freaks out thinking that something like mm-hmm. she tipped somebody. Yeah. He she says no, that's just my um SCD medicine. So oh, there's I, I, there, yeah she said oh that's my SCD medicine. So she's like she I think she knows she was about to get raped probably. Yeah. yeah so right. she he backs off because he doesn't want an SCD. <laughs> oh, yeah. So yeah. So it's kind of weird because it's almost like he he has a conscience but he doesn't. It's like yeah it's. Yeah, it's, it's almost it's, like he's bipolar, really. Like it's he, it's notable to say that this is a Christian man. Oh, he's wow. he's a Christian man. He's thirty four years old. He has a wife, and up until this point, he had a good life. It's like, almost like a light switch. That's just like yeah, how Sawyer's like, case is. Like, a, like he had a good life. Like he he was going to the police academy to be a, a police officer. Yeah, and his wife was like six months in. Dang. So it's like they were setting themselves up with their future careers. Okay. So they get up in the morning, and they're, yes. now they're looking for a car. And there's a man who comes up, and he's just setting, he's putting stuff, um, putting photography equipment in his car. Mm-hmm. So he's pretty vulnerable. This is, his last name is Levi, Jack Levi. He's putting stuff in his car, and when, when Evan Laura goes up, he pulls a gun and says, I need your car, don't, don't do anything. He screams for help, and Evan immediately shoots him in the abdomen. What? So he, he sprawls out, and he is screaming. He gets shot in the abdomen. So this is where it starts to take a, another turn. So, Andrea's still still with Edwin. Like she's she's just like there at the point. Along I mean, for the she's ride. basically yeah, that's that's his body bag. He, she, like she is going to go wherever he goes because she's not going to let him. He's not going to let her get away. So he shoots shoots him in the abdomen, and they run across the street to a gas station. They're like, okay, there's going to be a car here. So, a gram a grandson, two grandsons, and a grandmother are in the car. One of them's pumping the gas, and he steals the car with all three of them inside. And this is our next big turn. I mean, there's like this are three different parts of this. This is our next big turn. So as he steals this car, he he confesses to all of them that he killed Kaylee Sawyer. Right. In in I mean, I think obviously Andrea probably already knew that he had done something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it was like in the news at this point that that she was dead and yeah, that, and so and so's on the run. Well, right now this is just an Oregon case. Right. Oh, okay. They know that he had killed her, but they don't know that it was a murder because they think that he accidentally hit, hit her with a car. They, they oh still think God. that. Oh, my God. Yeah, you're right. So he, they still think it was an accident. Yeah, this is an accidental. Involuntary manslaughter. To him, yes. And they're just trying to find a body. So they're not seeing him as a murderer at all right so, now. So, so, wait, I must have missed that. So he said that he killed that girl on accident? He told his yeah, wife. Yeah, he told his wife that's that's that he told it was his wife accidental. she's the one oh, who put him in. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So they have no, like, hard ev- or, like, they have no good information. He's a cop. He probably could have gotten away with it, honestly. Ooh. Well, I'm saying I'm not trying to like, yeah, go him. I'm saying, but like because he's a cop, like, cops well, he's he's with- um he's a security guard. He's not necessarily he's like a college security guard. So he's not a little bit lower on a totem pole. I'll say is this like not in the museum, like that kind of guy? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So so he pulls up to this gas station, straight up yeets grandma and the two grandkids. Yeah, and they're, and they're along has, for the ride now. He has Andrea too. Yeah, she's, so he's got like four people with him. Four right yes, and this is where he says, okay. I killed this girl. I'm on the run. And this is where you see, okay, this is the reason I chose this case. He has a little bit of remorse in him. Mm-hmm. So okay. they're riding alone, and he's just asking, he's talking to him genuinely, just like, hey, wh- what are y'all doing? Like, why, why, are, why are the three of y'all going there? And the grandson sees this, okay, this is my chance to kind of see, just see where I'm going. Yeah. So the grandson says, okay, this is my grandma's first time in America. She's from Canada, and we're just showing her around. So Edwin's like, okay, this nice is his first impression. This is like, okay, this guy's a genuinely nice guy. So he lets him out the car. All three of them, they know about the murder now. 
So he, they're outside the car, which that's the end of it for them. They're, they're no longer a part of this case. What? That, that, he, he, said, he said, all right, y'all can go. But I'm taking the car. Now so, it's back to Andrea. Keeps her. So he yeah. said. Ed, Edwin keeps Andrea. That's his body bag. So, so basically the grandkids was like, yeah, this is grandma's first time in the U.S. And he's like, oh, you got to see this place. And then pulls over like, yeah, go, go enjoy it. I'm sorry. I'm like, what? Yeah. He, it's almost like. He, his flip switch, like he he had that like little switch in time when he yeah. killed her. But like he, other than that, he's like, he's not a bad dude. He's just normal. He's a normal guy. That's so weird. With an okay, urge to so kill. here's here's where I really got kind of tripped out in this case. So he lets him out on the side of the road, and as he's driving, as he's driving, he takes Andrea's phone, and he says, "All right, go to your Facebook." He gets on her Facebook, like does like a live video, which I'm I'm saying this girl is quick witted. Mm-hmm. She's very vulnerable. She doesn't want people to see this. And he's making a video. It's like, all right, to the parents of Kaylee Sawyer, I'm sorry. Just full confession. I'm sorry. Yes, full confession. On and Facebook I mean, it, it was titled like murder on a run and kidnapped. And she, she did not leak this. She put this private just to her because she, she just didn't want all her. Because it, it really doesn't mean anything at this point. I don't know. I don't know why she did this, but she just didn't want people to see her like that. As a victim. So, but, but in my mind, it's like, okay, you could have just helped so many like, people help find you. Well, maybe, maybe she was thinking... The, the grandson's grandma. I mean, I think that at this point, people are going to know. Right. Because you got Jack Levy, who was already shot in the abdomen. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, he, that's fair. It's no, he did not die. A bit we'll of say that. I, I was, he did not die. Okay, so he's still alive. He's still alive. Okay. And then he's got, so there's four people now who are free that have the opportunity to tell the cops. Okay. And they know the car now, mm-hmm. but he keeps going. So he kidn- he, he literally um, tells the parents, says, I'm sorry that I killed Kaylee, and I'm sorry that I kidnapped Andrea. Okay. And he admitted to being sorry. He said sorry like four times. Dang. So as he's going, he's still on, they're still on the way to California. And eventually a cop gets behind him. Oh. But it's not for the murder. He was speeding. It says he was going at least 90 to hey, start out with. Okay. Okay. He's, so he's on a mission nine. to get to California to, for some reason. I don't, I, they, I still have no motive to why he wanted to go to California. So. Okay. So but, he's just riding California down the highway, running 90. Yes. Okay. So this is, this is where I'm like, what this guy, his, his thinking smart, but he's also really stupid at the same time. Yeah. So he calls the cops. He yeah, does? He, he calls the cops and he says, Hey, I killed this girl back in Oregon. At this college, and he admits everything. He says, "This is where I want to go. I want to go to the next town. It's forty miles." Yeah. And the dispatcher. I mean, if if you go on, like, you can find this audio of this phone call. It's it's good to look at because it's like you can get to hear how calm all of them are. The dispatcher's like, "Okay, can you pull over for us?" He's like, "No, I'm gonna get to the next town." And the cops are trying to catch him right now, but he's still he's going over a hundred now. Okay, so they're chasing, they're in pursuit of him right they're now. They're in pursuit. Okay. But they're not on him. Okay. So this, the dispatcher's trying to plead with him to pull, to pull over. And then he says, I also have a girl kidnapped with me, so please don't shoot me. Oh my gosh. Well, I, that probably helped him though. It does, but this is where it gets weird. This is another weird part because Andrea, like, there was also a conspiracy that she was involved. So the dispatcher, when he says, I have a girl kidnapped with me, she says, okay, what's her name? She says, 
he said, her name's Andrea. She said, what's the last name? He said, I don't know. <laughs> At this point, he hands her the phone. She's on the phone with 911. Oh, my god! And she is talking just smooth. He's like, hey, I'm Andrea. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm chill. Like, she's just, it's weird how, how calmly she's talking because it's, she said in later interviews that she's so, she felt so in, in control of the situation. Like, regardless of what, like, that she was a hostage. Yeah. Like, at this point, she had, he'd let her go to the bathroom. He didn't rape her. Yeah. And he was genuinely just treating her, like, decent. Get a peek past to understand. I'm saying, that's the yeah. Lord. So God she, she like, I'm telling you, that's got his good time right there, Andrea. Praise keeping God. Her, keeping her cool. So right. she, she's like, she said, I have control of the situation, which is weird because I, I, didn't, I didn't understand that when I heard it. Is she an undercover cop? I have control of the situation. I'll call yeah, you that. Mind you, this is a 19 year old girl who works at Marshall's. Like, <laughs> she should not be this calm. So eventually, after, after all said and done, like, Andrea's talking to the, to the dispatcher and talk, talking to Evan saying, you might want to pull over. Yeah. He eventually pulls over, which is, and the cops get behind him. And like I'm saying, this guy has law enforcement, like knowledge. Yeah. So he gets out the cop, out the car and he's walking backwards with his hands on his head, just like you're supposed to do. You're supposed to walk backwards. He knows the interlaced and the dispatcher's like, is he doing this? She's like, yeah, he's, he's doing it perfectly fine. Like, and then like, all right, you get out the car now. So she thinks, okay, he's in custody. I'm done. Yeah. No. They take her into custody and, and question her too. Oh, like she was an accomplice? Or which, which accomplice? Or what? Accomplice. Mm-hmm. Accomplice. There it is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which this makes sense because of how calm she's been the whole time. Yeah, right. it's pretty. It's suspicious. It's it's very convenient. So they take them both into custody, and hers only happens for about a day. Do you think that was his intention all along? It's what to do like you mean? make it look like it was this dual effort thing. Um, I, I don't really think so. I think that he genuinely just wanted a body bag. He wanted someone to say, okay, you can't... I, he was scared of death. Yeah. He was scared to die. Even though he took somebody's life, which I think that's kind of cowardly of him to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he gets pulled over, and then he gets taken to custody. And when he gets into custody, he just talks about how sorry he is the whole time. Mm-hmm. Dude. And with them knowing his background of being a Christian, his investigator is a former preacher. So, I mean, this is, this is another part that you'd probably just want to go look into the audios of it because all these are online. It's, he's just talking to him like a man. He's like, look, dude, I don't, I don't know why you did this or like in what situation was involved. He said, I'm not even going to tell you that the Lord's going to forgive you. He said, but you know the Lord. Yeah. He said, so that's, that's going to be your best thing right now. And he's just trying to like see him as a man. Yeah. He said, the only thing I ask is that you, because they have not found the body yet. Yeah. Oh, dang. Apparently the body's hidden pretty good. So he's like, I just want to know where the body is. He said, can I get a piece of paper? Okay. Like, I guess to draw it like a map or something. Uh-huh. So he handed him a piece of paper, and all he writes down is 18700. What is that? What's 18700? So that's what the investigators thought, too. Like, this, he wrote this down so fast, he was, like, kind of ready to get it off his chest. They didn't even take him out of his handcuffs yet, and he's already done writing it. What? Okay. And he gave no further answers. He just wrote 18700. 18700. So they're they're confused and it, I I didn't know this, but I found I found this out when researching. That's a code for multiple like California has that as a code for something. One of them is like for cops it's like okay, this can this is going to misconstrue you because like a lot of times it's like financial stuff. 
Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. You're going to get financial benefit from this. So that's what it means a lot of times. So I was like, why would he write that? And that's what they were thinking too. I was like, okay, he's just giving us a code for like, this is not going to financially benefit you or something. Yeah. So when Oregon, like, cause they're, they're, he's not in Oregon right now. He's like pretty far over, like near California. Mm-hmm. So when they figure this out, they start checking anywhere in the county that has 18,700. And when they find this house, it says 18,700 mm. across the street, they find her body. What? So he was being genuinely truthful. Like he, he told him where the body was. I wonder why, I wonder why he gave him that though. Why not just tell him where the body is? Like why make them go through all right. that work? Which at this point, I mean, it's notable to say they have a little bit of evidence on him because right. well, he confessed in, to it in his shed. Also in his shed, the wife is looking for stuff because yeah. she's, she's a cop. She's helping. Mm-hmm. She looked in the shed and they found, they found one of the rocks with blood on it. Why keep the why rock? Keep the rock. Throw that thing in a river. Ex- exactly. Like that's why I'm saying like a lot of times you'll look into these cases and it's like, they just have like a mental lapse or they just do something really stupid. That one is- stupid, like one slip up, just like your case just mm-hmm. sets it all. So, then they start just wanting to know why he did it. And this is where the title of the podcast comes in. And this is why it's called this. Urge this to kill. Yeah, urge to kill. Creep. When he's asked why he killed Kaylee, he said he had an urge to kill. And he's always had it. That's he's it? He's always wanted to kill somebody. Just his whole life. Just had this urge. Yes, he's always the had scratch he couldn't itch. Or this itch he couldn't scratch. And that makes me sick. Yeah. That there, like, are pe- there are people that can genuinely just have no, no reason... No rhyme or reason. They just want to kill. That is scary. That is, yeah. Because it it's like, because that's literally what it sounds like. What happened? It's just something just flipped like, in. It's, it's just one little switch, and he saw the opportunity. He's like, okay, I've always wanted to do it. Here's my time. That is, that is scary. And it's like, also notable. He let, the, he let the intrusive thought, like, yeah. It's, it was like one, one little moment just set his whole life down. Dang. And it's also notable that just another point of his remorse, he, he wrote a letter to the, to the father of Kaylee Sawyer. And you can hear him just sobbing. Because in it's in the interrogation room. He's writing this letter. Mm-hmm. The preacher, the former preacher who was in, the investigator, asked him to write a letter. Mm-hmm. And um, I, don't, I don't know what they ever did with it. I mean, I'm, I know the dad got it, but Dang. he was probably not happy about it. But I mean, I'm he, sure. It, it was... It was said that there was genuine, like, I'm sorry. Like, I wonder, yeah, because, I mean, obviously the dad doesn't want to see that. He doesn't want to see, like, my little girl's gone. Like, this letter's not going to bring her back. Right. Dang, that's, that's deep. So this is what he was charged with. He was charged with four counts of aggravated murder and four counts of federal indictment. One for kidnapping, one for carjacking, and two for carrying and using a firearm for a crime of violence. So that's life. That's, that's death life. penalty. So, he entered a guilty plea for one count of aggravated murder and one count of robbery to avoid the death penalty. Really? Yes. And they took it. So, and usually, like, when you look up that sentence, it's usually only 20 years. Like, it's up to 20 years. So, you can get, like, 10 years. Right. The judge gave him life without parole because he said, you're an endangered, like, like I said, extreme danger to the community. Yeah. That's how I figured out that was a thing because the judge gave it to him. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, it just comes and says, "Oh, I just had an urge to kill." He's so unpredictable. Casually. Yeah, like, he's, what? Yeah, like you can't predict his next move. So like, you're unpredictable. Yeah, you're a danger to society. When do you get the urge again? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Does that urge ever leave? Is my thing. It's like, where, when does that stop? When did it start? Like, that's, that's yeah, well, that's, he says it's been his whole life that he's had this urge. That, that is crazy. scary. That's creepy. Yeah, yeah, that's just like 
Especially, yeah. And that's pretty much the ending of this case. I mean, that's not really a good ending, but but there is a law now in the state of Oregon called Kaylee's Law. And this is this is where campus security for colleges have to wear different uniforms, have different vehicles, and different equipment than law enforcement. And this happened in 2016? This is 2016, and they're trying to push it right now nationally. Really? So that's another reason I did this case is because just to give out that national, like little... Just so you can see that they're still trying to work on this and push it national. Because I think it should be national. Yeah. Dang, that's so crazy. Just out of nowhere, it's like... Yeah, that's, that's going to haunt me. And that's, a, that's a lot of power for somebody who's just campus security, part-time at a college. Dang. Yep. Well, I'll never trust anybody ever again. Even if you seem normal, you never know. You never know. Dang. All right, well, that one was good, Kale. That was. I'm glad we brought you on for that because that, that made my brain itch. Yeah. And hurt. I yeah, don't know. I, I sat on that one for a few days. I'm telling you, that's just that, like, that case has been sick of me for a minute. That is a that's a lot to congest. Congest? Ingest. Ingest. Digest. 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 Congest. 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 You got a congested okay. nostril. Okay. <laughs> All right. I needed that Amazingly. after hearing that story because that was like, oh, that was heavy. All right. So I guess that brings me to my true crime. Brings and me to me. <laughs> that was uh Mine isn't, mine isn't, it's politically charged. That's what I'm going to say. Mine's very politically charged. Okay. Um, All right. It's not very, like, I don't know. You'll, you'll just, you'll, you'll see. Let's you'll dive see. in. Let's do it. Let's just dive on in. All right. So mine is the Ryan Waller case. Okay. So there's this young couple in Phoenix, Arizona, 18-year-old Ryan Waller and 21-year-old Heather Kwan. That's young. Yeah. That's the youngest we've seen so far. That's, yeah. That, yeah, you're about to see. So Ryan was like originally known, uh, or no, he was originally from Knoxville, Tennessee, and he was a musician, uh, you know, had a bunch of instruments and everything. And he always, his dream was to be a part of like a band or something like that, some mm-hmm. big rock band or something. Now, Heather Kwan, on the other hand, she was a smart young lady who just finished her uh, college diploma in law, which is funny because like, yeah. you you're, saw your case had something about the her being a lawyer. Yeah. And her dream, Heather Kwan's dream was to become a defense attorney. It's One crazy day. that law is involved in all three of our cases. It, 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 that is weird. That is, it's, yeah. And we had, we, I, li- I would like to say, we did not know any prior knowledge on each other's cases at all. Yeah, no. I'm telling you. So that is kind of cool that there's a connection there. But yeah, no. So Ryan Waller and uh, Heather Kwan, like they, they had very different like, you know, dreams, but mm-hmm. they worked oddly, to, they worked good together, you know, in, in an odd fashion. A little lightheartedness and... The band versus the lawyer, so. Yeah, it's like opposites attract. So, you know, after about eight months of dating, Ryan and Heather decided that they were going to get an apartment together. And they did, and they had a roommate in this apartment, and her name was Alicia, okay? Now, before I go any further in this story, I want to give a background on the tenant that previously lived in this apartment. And his name is Richie Carver. Now, Richie had somewhat of a record on him. Um... And it wasn't just him, Richie, but his father, Larry Carver. Mm-hmm. And they were almost like partners in crime. And I have a list here of, of some of the, the crimes that they committed. So they committed many crimes together, including assault, armed robbery. Richie actually served four years in prison for stabbing, for a stabbing. And his father, Larry Carver, had been arrested several times for domestic violence, assault, weapon misconduct, theft, and spent most of his life in and out of prison. So I almost kind of feel bad for Richie. Yeah, because it looks like, like he was kind of set up like for failure. Yeah, almost. dude, like your dad's committed crime his whole life, and like it's like 
that's the only way you know to go go father, about your life. Father, son. Yeah, I mean that was their bonding time was committing crime. No, family I'm business. <laughs> just the family business. So, so Richie and Larry, kind of a bad duo here. But Richie had made an appearance back at the apartment that Ryan, Heather, and Alicia now live in, and he made two appearances. So the first appearance he made was um, roughly a couple months. Well, actually, I'm going to leave that out because I want to keep the suspense. The first appearance he made, he was asking about mail that might have belonged to him. That might have been sent to the apartment. And it was right. like, hey, have you got any mail? Kind of, kind of normal. Yeah, that, that's, that's yeah. fair. You know what I'm saying? I get like, other people's mail, the previous tenants' mail at my house all the time. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's not like anything like, oh, like, I was just seeing what y'all did to the that's place. You know, like yeah. something weird like that. But another time... Ryan and Heather, actually, the second time Richie had come to the place, they actually caught him in the backyard of the apartment. And when they confronted him, like, hey, dude, what are you doing in our backyard? <laughs> guess what he said he's looking for? Horticulture. <laughs> no, you're not going to guess it. He said he was looking for a four-foot iguana that he had lost when he lived there previously. He's just in the backyard looking for his iguana. Pet iguana, man. Four foot is huge. Dude, I'm that saying. is a monster. That thing is like 18 years old. Bro, you're not going to miss that. A four foot iguana, dude? Like, that thing oh, goes man, crazy. We ain't seen it. That's a dog. Like, dude. But I'm saying. <laughs> That's bigger like, than a dog. What do you mean? Dude, I'm like, nah, I'd be nervous now. Like, dang, we got to watch out for an iguana. There's a freaking in dinosaur in our backyard. <laughs> I'm saying, dude. So that, that immediately kind of gives me like red flags right there like you're just in the backyard looking for iguana the four foot or just the iguana yeah the, the, either one that the, both of them are red flags make a better excuse honestly so i wanted to give you that background of richie and his you know crime and everything like that you know and his background so moving forward this is the week of christmas in 2000, 2006 ryan and heather are celebrating the holidays in this apartment that they just moved into and alicia their roommate is out of town of visiting her family for the holidays so all of a sudden, Ryan and Heather hear some noises coming from their back sliding glass door. When Ryan gets up to go investigate, he finds Richie and Larry Carver breaking into their apartment. And when Richie sees Ryan, he immediately shoots him in the head. Ryan falls to the ground and the two men continue into the apartment. Now, when they get into the apartment, they turn around, shoot Ryan in the head again to make sure he's dead. They keep going into the apartment. That's brutal. I'm telling you. Two shots to the head. Two shots to the head. They keep going into the apartment. Heather has witnessed everything. So guess what they do? They shoot and kill her. So now once they've shot both Ryan and Heather, they begin looting the apartment. They're taking all of uh, Ryan's musical equipment. They're taking Mm -hmm. all of his electronic stuff. Basically just stealing a bunch of stuff to, you know, get something out of the crime since they just killed two people. So. now. Ryan and Heather, and I can't tell you the timeline yet because this kind of gets a little misconstrued later in the the investigation on what day this happened on. But it was around Christmas. We know that for sure in 2006. Now, Ryan and Heather were supposed to go to Ryan's parents' house to celebrate Christmas on the 25th, but they never showed. And this didn't sit right with Ryan's father, Don Waller. And Don tried calling Ryan multiple times, but every time it went to voicemail. So Don and his wife are like, nah, this isn't right. Something's wrong. We're going to go to his apartment and we're going to check it out. They get to the apartment. They try knocking on the door. No answer. So this, this is really unnerving to them. And right. they're like, okay, we got to figure something out. So they call the police and say, hey, I want you to do a wellness check on my son's house. We're here right now. And they're like, well, since it's technically not an emergency, 
and it's Chris, like it's Christmas day now. Mm-hmm. They're like, we can't just like, just drop what we're doing and come do a wellness check when it's not an emergency. We'll get there when we can. So they have to wait for the police to get there. So while they wait, they go and get a cup of coffee. <laughs> Funny enough, they go get a cup of coffee and they wait for the police to call them back. So while they're getting a cup of coffee, Alicia, the roommate who was visiting her parents for the holidays, mm-hmm. came back on the 25th. On the 25th, as Dawn and, or as Ryan's parents are going to get coffee to wait on the police to do a wellness check, she comes in between that time, goes in the apartment, goes straight to her bedroom, doesn't even see Ryan or Heather laying on the floor. I need the layout of this apartment. I'm saying. So that, to me, I'm like, what? Like you That's kind of sketchy because it's like. So, yeah, at first when I read that, I was like, okay, that's a red flag to me. Because right. like, you walked right in that apartment straight to your bedroom and you didn't see two bodies on the floor. Right. That's crazy. So when the police finally show up, they, they show up at midnight, which is around three to four hours after Don and his wife had called the police to do this wellness check. And when they came and did the wellness check, they walked around the, hi- the house, like the apartment, shining the flashlight inside, whatever. And when they do, they see a body on the floor or what they believe is a body. Mm-hmm. Now, when you see this, when a police officer sees this, they can legally go into that apartment. If they think if somebody's in danger, somebody's hurt or something like that, they can legally go into the apartment. Right. No but, warrant. No, nothing. They can just go. Right. They can go on in because it's, it's like, okay, this is an emergency now. Yeah. But for some reason, they ignore this protocol and go to a judge and ask for a warrant to search the home um, and, you know, like, see what's going on here, which is weird. Like, right. why didn't you why just go it? break in door right then? So they get the warrant, and that takes about an hour to get the warrant. So they get the, they get, the cops come back out there with the warrant, and they have a locksmith out there, and he tries to unlock in the front door. He can't get it open. He tries going to the back door. He can't get it open. And I'm like, what a locksmith, dude. You're so sorry. Like, you're, you're one right. job, and you're, you're failing at it. So as he's working on the back door, the door opens, and standing in the doorway is Ryan Waller. What? Yep. Ryan Waller, who had been shot twice in the head. Ryan Waller, 50 cents? I'm t- Ryan Waller with two shots in his dome? So Ryan has a black eye that is swollen shut, and he seemed very confused. And when the police came in the apartment and they find Heather dead on the couch, guess what they immediately do? They put Ryan on the ground, handcuff him, and throw him in the back of the cop car. That's what I would do, too. I mean, yeah. So Ryan's parents are, like, extremely confused because, like, they finally got to get in the apartment and they see their son getting thrown in the back of a cop car. And they're like, what's going on? Can I see my son? They're like, no, you can't see your son. Ryan sits in this cop car for four hours. And during this time, paramedics show up to examine Heather's body, but obviously she was dead. The paramedics then leave without even examining or treating Ryan. Now, Ryan tries telling the police that he was shot, or or in the back of the car, that he was shot in the head. But police officers respond to him and said, if you had been shot in the head, then you would be dead. That's so so frustrating. How do you not see two bullet holes in somebody's head? So, okay. And I wish I could show you pictures of what he looks like. It, it can, he's, he's hurt. And here's the thing. When you, it doesn't matter if you didn't believe that he was shot in the head or not. He, if you can see physical injuries, mm-hmm. then you, should, you, you should check him out at least. I mean, legally, regardless. Legally, you have to. Legally, if you see. Yeah, that's the legal duty to act. Yeah, so they had, they, they neglected, they skipped protocol once again, totally neglected to get the paramedics over there to actually examine him. 
So they take the Ryan to the police station, neglecting his wounds completely, and um, they start immediately interrogating him. Like I said, he has visible wounds. Nobody cares. Nobody checks him out. So what the, the police think is that this is an open and closed case, right? They believe mm-hmm. Ryan uh, got in a fight with Heather. Heather hit Ryan, which gave him the black eye that he had. And, he, you know, he shot Heather. And now he's just making up this whole story about getting shot, right? Well, co- cops believe this until they start asking Ryan questions during the investigation. Now, Ryan has his body fixed in a very odd way during this investigation. And it's like he's having a hard time, like, and you have to watch the video. He's having a hard time, like, sitting up. Like, he's, like, holding his head up and stuff like that. And he keeps, like, groaning and making, like, grunting noise. Like, I really feel bad for the guy. I mean, if you've been shot twice in the head, I would be too. That's what I'm saying. Like, this guy is, like, exactly. He's got two shots in the head. Well, this has been at least eight hours at this point. Yes. Like, that's, that's known timeline. So that's what I'm saying. He, he, has been, he has been in a lot of pain, and, and now they're making him sit in the cop car for four hours, and now they start interrogating him. So in this footage, you can see that his eye is extremely bruised, and he has a mark on his nose, on his left nostril. So the detectives begin asking Ryan very simple questions, and his responses throughout are very odd. So the detective, the detective asked him a question like, what grade were you in when you finished school? And Ryan doesn't remind, he doesn't respond. It's almost like he doesn't know. Like, mm-hmm. they ask him the question, he's just like, he doesn't say anything. He said, I don't know. Another question was, do you have a girlfriend? Ryan said, no. Which we all know, he had a girlfriend named Heather who was just killed in his apartment. Right. Right? So, she, um, then they continue to ask, do you know Heather and what is her last name? Ryan answered, the one who lives there, right? I don't know what she's trying to use as her last name. Obviously, a very weird answer to that, right. that question. It's messed up. They also asked, how old was Heather? Ryan replied, I think 16 or 17. Which I'm like, that's probably a terrible look. Like, yeah. You're, yeah, that's a gr- case. Yeah, exactly. She, but everybody knows she was 21 years old. Right. right. But it was probably a bad look. They was like, yeah, my girl's 16 years old. Like, oh, God. Can, you're not, like, helping yourself. The investigator then asked if Heather was a white girl, and Ryan replied, yes, but she wasn't white. When they asked him, what happened to your face, Ryan responds, I don't know. I guess Heather must have hit me. So he's answering everything completely wrong, and he's super confused throughout all these questions, right? And he kept saying he wanted to go home and go to bed. And towards the end of the interrogation, Ryan starts to piece the memories back together and tells the detective that Richie and Larry Carver gives them the names of the people that that did this. Mm -hmm. Richie and Larry Carver broke into my house armed with bows and arrows. Then he corrects himself because obviously he's probably not right in the head right now. They were armed with revolvers and they shot me and Heather. So the detective starts to piece together that, okay, this guy's not right. He Mm -hmm. is like, he's acting very confused. He's answering these questions very odd. And they're like, even if he is, isn't telling the truth about getting shot in the head, he's at least got a concussion or something like that. Right. So or even in shock. I mean, really? Well, it is notable to know that like a lot of times if you get shot in the head and survive, you will lose your memory at least the time of when you got shot. That happens. That's a normal thing. And and so, and that's in multiple the, cases that I've seen. Yeah, so you gotta realize this guy's got two bullets in his head and he's yeah. trying to he's getting interrogated. And I wanted to throw this out there. The detective questioned Ryan for six hours. So now we're at 14 hours. Six hours. At least. At least since he's been killed. Six hours before they finally 
let him get medical attention. And they say when the detective came back into the room to tell Ryan he could finally receive medical attention, the detective was like super nice and caring. And he was telling Ryan, it's going to be okay, buddy, and everything like that. And it's probably because they, they just talked in the back room and we're like, dude, we should have probably gave this guy medical attention we earlier. Even, we just messed up. Like, we're all yeah, going to lose our job. Yeah. Up, and now they got to cover their tail. Yeah. So they're like, oh my God, like this guy actually is messed up. And we just been like drilling him for six hours and he's actually like messed up. So I bet you they're all freaking out at this time. Like, dang, yeah. we're, we're all fired. So when Ryan was finally checked out by medical professionals, they said that he had a bacterial infection in his brain caused by two gunshot wounds. Lead. It's called lead poisoning. <laughs> Probably, dude. I'm telling you. One, one entered his left eye and one entered his left nostril. So the mark that you see in the video on his left nostril is a bullet entry. Going in his so head. there's not that much blood. I was about to say it's, it said he had a black eye and a scratch. So that's like he, he wasn't bleeding at all. Like that's it, odd. Yeah, he had barely mm-hmm. any blood coming from his his wounds. So they uh they discovered. So they they had to end up uh, giving him like surgery and everything like that. Yeah. Obviously. So Ryan, before they gave him the surgery, and they were also checking him out about like the two gun gun wounds. Ryan also had a broken jaw, but it wasn't from the the attack that that Richie and Larry did that night it was when the police threw him to the ground when they discovered him in the apartment and they threw him to the ground because they told him to get on the ground and he was confused on what was going on and he didn't comply oh my god so, but yeah, the police the, the police testify we used a pressure point in his jaw to force him into the ground okay so they basically they for- put a lot of pressure on that point dude they p- basically forced him to the ground and broke his jaw doing so because he didn't know what was going on. Probably because he had two bullets in his head. Right. You know what I'm saying? He's so, like a walking zombie right now. It, this is like a very this is a very frustrating case to listen to. So he ends up, you know, having to get surgery done. And when they start like digging in his head, they discovered that his eye socket was completely destroyed. He had pieces of bone in his brain. And during the surgery, uh, sorry, the surgery, he had to have both of his eyes and part of his brain removed during the surgery. Mm. So he was left blind after the surgery. He had to have both mm. of his eyes removed. So he was blind after the surgery and was in the hospital for 35 days. During this time, officers never came and asked Ryan questions again, nor did they ever look for the killers Richie and Larry Carver that Ryan told them, hey, that's who did it. And they aren't, they, you, those people have a criminal record. Like, yes. He I said, mean, and also as like an ex tenant. So, like, that's like, come on, I mean, suspect you look like, at, that's like the first person you. you look at. Yeah. And so he basically gave them, like, like, hey, this is who did it. And during the 35 days he was in the hospital, they never even checked. But once he got out of the hospital, police finally came back to interrogate Ryan again. And they used the information that he told him after he got out of the hospital to arrest Richie and Larry Carver. And both were sentenced to prison for life. But I do want to say that they did, a, a law went into place during this. And it's called Heather's Law. And it was made for Heather. So Richie, um, he was actually like connected to the murder. He was like connected to the crime scene. He was immediately put into prison for life. Larry, his father, though, he wasn't connected to the crime scene. They, couldn't have, they didn't have any hard evidence on him to pin him to the crime scene. But his wife came out, Larry's wife came out and said, hey, he, he confessed to me that he did it, right? Well, once they start pushing her like for more, and she went back home to her husband, who probably, who is known for domestic violence, 
probably shut her up after that. She comes back and says, marital privilege, I'm not going to talk anymore. He didn't do it. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said any of that. So they put Heather's law, they created this law because of Heather, and said, hey, if you come out and you confess and you open that door, you cannot claim marital privilege anymore. And you right. ba- and back out and say none of it happens. They were like, if you open the door, it's open. We can convict. Yeah, that's and, fair. And so they, they put that law in effect after this crime took place, but they, they basically grandfathered that case into it, so they got to put Larry in, in prison for life. Right. So the, a law was put in place because of her. So once uh, both of these guys were sentenced to prison for life, Ryan lived in the rest of his life disabled and suffered from many seizures, and he eventually died from one of his seizures in 2016. 10 years after this crime was committed. Once Ryan died, his family started to go to war on, on his behalf and filed a lawsuit against Phoenix City Police for the way Ryan was treated during the investigation. Right. Yeah, you know what right. I'm saying? Cause that, but 10 years after? Is that, yeah. Well, so, so they, they, started, they started the lawsuit, I think, towards... I think, I don't know why probably they once started... He started having seizures. It's probably when they did it. I think they started it after he died. I don't know if he wanted to put it to rest and didn't want anything to do with it. And when he passed his fam- their family, because he died because of the seizures that he had because of the brain mm-hmm. damage. Mm-hmm. So they, they went to war with the Phoenix City Police. And this was a good idea, but this is where everything starts to get a little crooked. So Ryan and Heather were, and this is where I'm going to the date that they died. Yeah. Ryan and Heather were shot on Christmas Day. Right. But police try to say that they were shot on December 23rd, two days before Christmas. And Ryan sat in the apartment for two days after he was shot. And the reason they said that he died on the 23rd rather than the 25th is to basically say the police can't be blamed for any complications caused by delays for Ryan's injuries not being treated. They could just blame it on him sitting on the floor in that apartment for two days. So, so basically... They covered themselves up. So basically, they're trying to say, okay, yeah, I know we had to get the warrant. I know we, had to, we kept him in the cop car for four hours. I know we interrogated for six hours. But none of that matters because he, he died two days before and sat in the floor for two days. That's what caused him all, all of his complications. Not us taking our sweet time. That's what they're trying to blame it on. So, but Brian's parents refused to believe that, that they were killed on December 23rd instead of Christmas Day because Ryan was at his parents' house all day on December 23rd. So there's no way he could have been killed on December 23rd when he was at his parents' house. And a pizza delivery guy testified saying he delivered Ryan and Heather a pizza the night of the 23rd, and they were completely fine. So the cops are saying they died on the 23rd, and his whole family and this pizza delivery guy, which thank God they ordered pizza that night, said they were fine that night. There was nothing wrong. I would also say that, like, the other roommate, Alicia, she, she would be able to smell. After two days, there's, yeah. a, there's a certain stench yeah, you're from telling, a dead body. Yeah, and that, that's... Well, Alicia didn't come back until the 25th. The same day that The same day, but I feel like if she walked in her apartment, walked in her room... Oh, two days She late. would smell it. That's what I'm you, saying. You would smell a dead body. That's what I'm thinking. And, and there's no way that he was able to be interrogated and everything without food and water for two days sitting mm-hmm. on that floor. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, even if he did wake up... He would he, also be dead. Yeah. yeah, he would also be dead. So, so Heather's autopsy said she died between 5 p.m. and 8 p.m. on December 25th. Her autopsy said that. And on her tombstone, it says that she died December 25th. 
Even the interrogation with Ryan on December 26, the day after Christmas, detectives ask Ryan, what happened last night? Why would they come on Christmas Day? Basically confirming that the crime happened on Christmas Day. Police delayed Ryan's treatment by hours between getting a warrant, keeping him in the cop car for four hours, and interrogating him for 10 hours. But the Phoenix police say that he was shot and killed on December 23rd, and the police delaying Ryan's treatment had nothing to do with his injuries and overall death. Ryan's father claims that Heather's autopsy report date was changed from December 25th to the 23rd to cover it up. So like cops went in there and started finagling with evidence. The detective who interviewed Ryan also swore under oath and stated that he didn't realize the severity of Ryan's injuries. But in the interrogation tapes, Ryan asked, can I go home and sleep? The detective replies, you should go to the doctor. That's where you should go. Ryan replies, me? Why, this? Pointing at his black eye. Is it bad? The detective replies, I'd say that's really bad. If you have a concussion, then you don't need to sleep. So the detective obviously lied under oath because he stated in the video that Ryan's injuries were bad. Mm -hmm. So when they asked him, oh, was his injuries that bad? In court, he was like, no, they were fine. I couldn't tell anything crazy. But in this, in this tape, he was like, yeah, it was bad. So the lawsuit against the Phoenix City Police was ongoing for over three years when it was dismissed by the judge because supposedly the Phoenix City Police found a brain expert that testified that the six-hour delay in Ryan's treatment probably didn't make a difference in his outcome, and he would have had the same damage if he was treated right away. Ryan's father said that he had an expert brain surgeon that would have testified against that and would have stated that when a brain is bleeding, it means it's swelling, and when it's swelling, it means catastrophic damage is being done every minute, and every minute is crucial. The judge dismissed the case just three weeks before the Waller family was going to have their day in court, and Ryan's father states that he had no doubt that a jury would have sided with them. The Phoenix City Police knew this, and that is why they pushed to dismiss the case just three weeks before the Waller family was able to bring their evidence in. The Ryan Waller case has had no justice to this day. And that is the Ryan Waller case. Okay, mine officially does not have the worst in <laughs> Dude, I'm... Mine had abandoning, but that is just so frustrating. Isn't it? That's I, just, it's, uh, that's like almost not even just like, okay, you're saving yourself, but like just as a humanity, like it's neglect. Like, there's it's so just, many people who just all sides that was bad. I'm telling you, it, it was like, it was, I feel like it was the worst way to go about a case ever. And it, that happens more than you think. Yes. Most, most crime podcasts I listen to, cops are usually not good. Like, it's just crazy to me. Like, this guy got shot in the head twice, miraculously lived, and probably most likely died and had all these seizures, lost his eyesight and everything because cops wouldn't believe him and wouldn't give him medical treatment right away. But honestly, even with cops, like, you're, they're going to get away with it. It's going to be on the, it's going to be on the city in yeah. general. So and it's not even going to be on them. Like, on, take, take your blame. And they, they got away with it. They, they, they got the court, dis, uh, they got the whole trial dismissed. Because if you put that in front of a jury, you put in all the evidence, of course the jury would have been like, dude, Ryan got done dirty. Mm -hmm. And it was a $15 million dollar lawsuit. They just dismissed it three weeks before the Wallers were supposed to go to court. And dude, it's just like crazy to me. It's like, dude, like the people that are supposed to protect you are the ones doing this guy so dirty. And I don't know. When I read this case and I saw this, I was like, 
I need people to hear about this because it was frustrating listening to this. Well, even yeah. in my case, it was somebody who was supposed to like protect people. I'm so saying, like, and it's crazy that all three of our like stories was about normal people that just for y'all it was people who went off the rails, but mine it's just like this guy just I got don't know done if my dirty. Dude was normal, huh? I don't know if my dude was normal. Well. He fit into society. He wasn't like a little crackhead in, a, in an RV. Like right. he, you know what I'm saying? Like he could have fit in society and nobody he was a knew. functioning member. Yeah. Right. See, yeah. see, my like, he was normal though, which threw me. I, he just had an urge to kill. That's yeah. the only thing he said. That's the scariest. Any, thing. any, I'm, like had like, genuine empathy and genuine remorse, which is not something that a lot of killers have. Yeah. So that's why my case has helped me for so long. Is because he just he felt bad. Yeah. Yeah. He he went on his urge and after that felt bad. And I think after listening to all three of these true crimes, like, and hearing about all the, the <laughs> loss of life, I want to bring us into God is good time and talk about a life that was saved. Cause like, I feel like that was Amen. pretty, that was pretty heavy. Yeah, I feel that's, like this that's whole a episode, heavy episode. Um, but yeah, I kind of want to bring us into God is good time. And this one's actually about a firefighter, firefighter, <laughs> a firefighter in Deerfield, Massachusetts. Um, and he actually uh, saved a woman who was trapped in a vehicle in a raging uh, in a river with raging floodwaters surrounding her vehicle. And this guy is the Deerfield Assistant Fire Chief Ben Clark, and he happened to be at the right place at the right time. And he was out surveying uh, some storm damage that happened recently when the roadway suddenly gave away and a vehicle in front of him plummeted 15 feet straight down into an intermittent stream that had become a small river from a catastrophic back-to-back flash flooding. Mm. So Ben immediately called for assistance while he gathered his rescue equipment. And then he, uh, he went down the embankment and rescued the trapped individual out of the vehicle in a high-velocity small river. The water was flowing over the vehicle's headlights. Like, this thing was in this, like, small little river. And this river wasn't even here. It was, it was caused by flash flooding. So right. that had been happening all the, all the past the couple weeks. Yeah. Um, so he goes into this river trying to fight the current to get into this car and an ambulance arrived and took the, and he got the lady out of the car and an ambulance arrived and took the woman to Bay State Franklin Medical Center. Authorities did not release her name, but police said that she is recovering well from the ordeal. And she says, Ben, you are a true hero to this community. And yeah, dude, I was just like, I don't know. I, it, this isn't anything spectacular. It's not a, like just an awesome story that like had intricate parts to it. It was just. We, we were talking about so much, like, loss of life. I was like, at least this guy, like... Let's turn it around. Yeah. There's still good well, somewhere. Even, even just, it's a person who's supposed to protect us. Right. And he did his job. And he did it, yeah. Exactly. Like, and good, I feel like... Good job, Ben. Yeah. Hey, hey, good, Shout good, out good, to Ben. Hey, God is good. Thank you for, for Ben, because, I mean... Because, like I said, in my case, it's like, the people that are supposed to protect you, it felt like they were working against you. But, right. like, you can still see there is still there good. There is light on every side. I mean, there's light and dark in everything, but... Yeah, focus on the yin light sometimes. I mean, yeah, and yeah, especially yin and yang. yeah, as I say, especially after this episode, like fo- focusing on some some light in the darkness is is nice. But yeah, guys, Kale, thanks for coming on the uh, episode. Thank you for having me, it was You're really shooting great. in the dark with us. I know it. Yeah, actually, if anybody, <laughs> we started recording this like a couple hours ago. And it is now pitch black outside, and we're all just sitting in the dark right now. So <laughs> it kind of added to the episode. It like it, it gave us the vibe we needed for this. Yeah, I was fine until all the lights went out, and I just started sweating. And it I was, was like it one light oh my went gosh. out, and it was like dim, but it wasn't dark. And then that one went away. Yeah, and now it's just pitch black. <laughs> it's so dark. Yeah, in here. we can't even really see each other anymore. I we're know. We're just like looking at we're blank just talking faces, to, talking in the darkness. But yeah, 
Well, hey guys, thanks for listening to another episode of Shooting the Breeze. I'm Cody. And I'm Sawyer. And we'll see you next week with another episode. (laughs) 